Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Professor Christine Metz and we'll be diving into women's health. Christine began her education in human nutrition at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, before completing a master's and PhD in immunology at New York University. Among numerous positions, she's currently a professor at the Institute of Molecular Medicine and head of the Laboratory of Medicinal Biochemistry at the very wonderful Feinstein Institute for Medical Research. She's also professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology and Molecular Medicine at the Donald and Barbara Zucker School of Medicine at Northwell Health on Long Island, New York. That is also an amazing institution that I've collaborated with on a number of projects. So big shout out to my friends on Long Island. Christine has published over 150 peer-reviewed research papers, as well as numerous review articles and book chapters. She is globally and appropriately recognized as a top scientist for very good reasons. In her spare time, she enjoys gardening, walking with her dog, Rocky, and traveling with her husband and two daughters. Professor Christine Metz, welcome to the EMJ podcast. Hello, and thank you so much for hosting me today. It really is a pleasure. And I was just joking with you just before we got started that just before we got on, I got a, <laughs> an email from a friend of mine. She wanted to know what I knew about endometriosis, presumably because she's got it. And I responded and said, I'll talk to you in about an hour because I think I'm going to know a lot more then. So, Christine, first of all, tell us about your journey. What inspired you to take the educational path you did take? Well, I kind of knew I wanted to go into medical research after my father had a severe infection uh, that then led to sepsis back when I was in college. And I'll never forget his doctor telling me that my dad had a 50-50 chance of surviving, even though they knew he had an infection and it was being treated. I was very naive to think that antibiotics could simply save everyone who's battling infections. And that's when I really learned that there was so much more to do to advance medicine through research. And so while I was an undergraduate at Cornell, I joined a laboratory at the time studying placentas. Um, and that was my first experience with research. And I got the bug. <laughs> Funnily enough, um, I, I share the bug. And many, many moons ago, I did some work with placenta with amniotic epithelium. Um, we were playing around with these pluripotential non-immunogenic um, cells, which today you would call stem cells, of course. So tell us specifically how you got into your field of work. So much of my earlier work actually focused on learning about how the body regulates inflammation. Too much inflammation is harmful and can damage the body. Too little inflammation leaves the body very vulnerable to infections. And it was the late 1990s when I really got interested in the intersection between inflammation and women's health. I began collaborating uh, with the late Ali Akum from Quebec, and we studied inflammation associated with endometriosis lesions. And at that time, I knew very little about endometriosis. But as I learned more, I realized that this condition was somewhat neglected. And I was really attracted to working in the area because there was so much to do research-wise. Yeah. So 
I always, you, you've mentioned uh, at the beginning your, your, your father, but what about other defining points in your career? Maybe those aha moments that drove research down a particular route, for instance. So for sure, one of the aha moments was entering women's health research in the 1990s and learning how research in the area of gynecologic conditions seemed to be way behind other areas. So I really committed my lab uh, to studying this. And in 2013, I had been collaborating with a geneticist, Dr. Peter Gregerson, and we received seed funding from the Endometriosis Foundation of America, or EFA. And I think receiving money to study endometriosis was another aha moment, uh, because it's very difficult to get money to study a disease that is very underfunded. And after attending a conference um, on endometriosis and talking with many patients with endometriosis, we learned that there were two major frustrations for these patients. The first was a long delay, up to seven to 10 years in diagnosis, mainly due to the need for surgery. And the second was really a lack of effective and tolerable treatments for patients with endometriosis. And these are the two things we have really focused on uh, over the last 10 years or so. Well, so you've mentioned endometriosis. Uh, it's a common and wretched condition. I remember the first time I saw, and I, I learned my laparoscopic skills uh, from my gynecologic colleagues uh, many moons ago. And I know that you're co-director of the Research Outsmarts Endometriosis or ROSE study. What a great acronym. <laughs> Christine, although most of our audience are healthcare practitioners, we do have some lay listeners. So please, firstly, set the scene about endometriosis. And you can then maybe tell us a wee bit more about this study, its aims and conclusions. And I should also mention that you've, uh, you've shared with me some great collateral material uh, in order to recruit people for clinical trials. And maybe we can include links to some of this stuff in, in the show notes. So first of all, do endometriosis 101, then tell us about the study aims and conclusions and tell us about recruiting. All right. Uh, so to define it, endometriosis is a condition that affects approximately one in 10 people with uteruses who are of reproductive age. Endometriosis occurs when the cells that are normally found in the endometrial lining of the uterus grow outside of the uterus, so mainly in the pelvic cavity or what we call the abdominal cavity. These endometrial-like cells grow as lesions in and around the uterus, the ovaries, fallopian tubes, bladder, rectum, and other organs. And each month, these lesions respond to hormones just like the endometrial lining, they bleed and shed, causing inflammation, fibrosis with pain. And approximately 70% of patients with endometriosis suffer with chronic pelvic pain. It can be severe menstrual pain, pain during sex, pain going to the bathroom, as well as abdominal bloating and other GI issues. And when left untreated, endometriosis can lead to infertility in about 20 to 30% of patients. Um, and the emotional toll of this condition ends up being quite significant. 
the Rose study that we founded has focused on investigating menstrual blood, also known as menstrual effluent. And that is the shed endometrium or lining of the uterus. A lot of people say, well, why on earth would you study menstrual effluent? And the scientific basis for this is really simple. The endometrial lining of those with endometriosis is very different from those without endometriosis. And the main differences are increased inflammation and reduced stromal cell differentiation. The stromal cells are a particular cell in the endometrium that are important in implantation and pregnancy. Since the lining of the uterus is shed every month is menstrual blood, we proposed that we could study menstrual blood or menstrual effluent um, and that it would we'd see differences and we could leverage those differences to develop diagnostic or screening tools for this condition. And I have to tell you that menstrual blood had not been studied before in the context of endometriosis or any uterine conditions. So very little was known about it. And in fact, the only work that had been done on menstrual blood was identifying some of these stem cells, uh, as you referred to earlier, uh, because the uterus has to regenerate every single month. So we've been pioneers and have tried to learn more about menstrual blood and believe that it's really been a neglected biological specimen. And on another interesting note, another reason to study menstrual blood is that interestingly, only 4% of mammals menstruate and only those animals that menstruate have actually been identified as having endometriosis naturally. Um, so it's a very interesting but select problem. That's intriguing. Which are the some of the species that do and that get endometriosis? Obviously humans, um, some non-human primates, yeah. a few strains of bats, and the elephant shrew. So primates, primates, that makes sense. And do we know why? Do we know why it's only limited to certain members of the animal kingdom? There have never been conclusions about this, but there are some evolutionary biologists that have proposed various reasons for this. And the expense of reproduction in these animals is quite high. And some people have proposed that it is a way of cleansing the uterus prior to implantation. It is a way of preventing um, implantation from being too invasive in our species, but we really don't know why these few select animals menstruate. Absolutely fascinating. So you, you mentioned that there's a delay to diagnosis with this condition, and certainly I know as a surgeon, I would be referred patients with chronic abdominal pain and of course, if it was cyclical or they had dyspyunia pain during sex, one would think of endometriosis if the lady had not already seen a gynecologist. But tell us about the diagnostic challenge. And, and also, uh, I neglected to push you to tell us a wee bit more about who you're trying to recruit for your studies, just so we can give a big shout out and try and uh, drive recruitment for you. Absolutely. 
Um, so endometriosis can only be definitively diagnosed through laparoscopic surgery, where a small camera is inserted into the abdominal cavity to look for lesions. The suspected lesions are surgically removed and analyzed for the presence of endometrial-like or uterine-like tissues. And the requirement for surgery is a major hurdle for many, especially teens who do not want permanent scars on their bellies. Uh, and some patients actually don't really get referred for diagnostic surgery, so that's a problem. And then many people, as I said, delay the surgery, delaying their diagnosis. And in fact, it's estimated that the average delay in diagnosis is seven to 10 years. However, we've had participants in the ROSE study who experienced delays of up to 20 years and even longer. We've actually had some mother-daughter pairs who were diagnosed within the same year. So people in their late mid to late 40s and their early 20s as pairs. Um, and to us, that's incredibly frustrating. And in our study, we are particularly interested in teens who are suffering with dysmenorrhea. Um, and we also have a clinical study looking to recruit patients who are seeing a laparoscopic surgeon and would be willing to give a menstrual blood sample prior to surgery so that we can compare our results with the um, gold standard of laparoscopic surgery. Right. And is awareness an issue? I mean, do most, do most women know about it? Do most primary care doctors know all about endometriosis and think about it? So we think awareness has improved immensely in the last 10 years uh, since we've actually started the study. And I think that is a big plus. I think there's been a lot of dismissal of pain in women, which has kind of reduced um, their abilities for being diagnosed properly. And I think that in many cases, people experience a lot of GI issues. So they begin their diagnostic odyssey by going to a GI specialist who doesn't necessarily think about endometriosis and refer them to a gynecologist. So there are, you know, unusual paths people take to get their final diagnosis. Okay. So we've now got a woman who's been diagnosed with the condition. What, what's the right therapy and what's access to the right therapy look like? Uh, in places like the United States and I'm sure here in the UK? So effective intolerable therapies for endometriosis are quite limited. It's characterized by excess estrogen and reduced progesterone. And therefore, almost all of our drug-based treatments are hormone-based. However, it's important to note that these hormone-based treatments only treat pain. They do not alter the progression of the disease. And in fact, in the United States, many of these agents are FDA approved for the treatment of pain of endometriosis. Surgery to remove the lesions is the most effective treatment for severe endometriosis. But there are some limitations here. Some lesions are microscopic and are missed during the surgery. And therefore, we find that many patients undergo several surgeries over their reproductive years to keep pain in check and to maintain their fertility. 
Now, with respect to access to surgery, it's difficult for patients to find highly qualified surgeons to perform the diagnostic and excision surgeries to remove the lesions. And many of them, at least in the United States, um, may not take insurance. So that is a challenge. Um, And clearly, without an early diagnosis for endometriosis, we really haven't been able to even study the effects of early treatment in any organized way. So it's very unclear whether if you did get an early diagnosis and an early treatment, whether your outcome would actually even be better. And I think that's another frustrating thing uh, for patients. Sure. And my recollection, you can you can have multiple, multiple lesions. They look like little sort of dark uh, purplish spots, really, right? There are many lesions. Some are dark purple, some are the chocolate, some of them are white, um, and it depends on their location. But a lot of them are microscopic or they grow like an iceberg and grow into the tissue. So they're very difficult to see. Yeah. And you, you can have them on the surface of the uterus, the bladder, the large bowel, the small bowel, and then things start sticking together. You get adhesions and that can cause problems. I mean, it's a serious issue, really, really serious issue. So 2018, you received the Northwell Health Innovation Award. I had to say that slowly because when I was thinking about it before, I was sort of tripping over my tongue for, <laughs> for research on developing a novel non-invasive diagnostic test for endometriosis, right? So we're putting that up against having laparoscopy, which requires an anesthetic and, you know, an incision into the abdomen and inflating carbon dioxide. It's not without risk. Tell us about this research and tell us where you are with it. Sure. So yes, in 2018, Dr. Peter Gregerson and I won a Shark Tank-like event at Northwell Health, and it was really about innovation within the healthcare industry. And since then, um, as a result of winning that award, we've received well over a million dollars in support from Northwell Health, and we are incredibly grateful for that. And at that time, we proposed that menstrual blood could be used to diagnose endometriosis, And we had very limited data at the time, but the data that we had was pretty convincing and we could describe it to the lay audience of investors. Um, And since then, we've really focused our efforts on improving diagnostic and screening for this condition based on menstrual effluent. This past fall, we published a paper showing that analyzing menstrual blood through single-cell RNA sequencing reveals very significant differences in menstrual blood from patients with and without endometriosis. And if I could say it in one sentence, I'd say we discovered that menstrual blood from healthy patients and you know healthy controls has many more differentiated stromal cells and more uterine natural killer cells. And patients with endometriosis have more inflammatory stromal cells, fewer natural killer cells, and more B cells, likely reflecting inflammation within the uterus. Of course, we don't need to diagnose endometriosis in patients who have already been diagnosed, which is basically what we showed in the paper. We really need to identify endometriosis in patients who have not yet been diagnosed. And that's really the focus of our ongoing clinical study. 
In this ROSE-2 clinical trial, we are enrolling patients who have symptoms and are actually seeing a laparoscopic surgeon, but they have not yet been diagnosed. And we're hoping to compare our results of analyzing menstrual blood with that of the gold standard of laparoscopic surgery in order to verify our method. And we're hoping to submit data to the FDA uh, in 2024 based on this work. So that clinical trial is registered on us.gov for clinical trials and um, our website, which I'll share the links. Fantastic, because I would imagine that there would be some women who would be resistant to having a diagnostic laparoscopy or again, there's the issues with access, as, as, as you mentioned. So that's, that's very cool. So, Christine, a lot of your research has focused on improving women's health. And um, I've often been frustrated because of my experience that, that women have done a much better job advocating for their own health, right? Then it leads to better funding. Women are just much better and more vocal about talking about their health issues both amongst themselves and publicly. And frankly, it's been my experience that they're also much better about talking about the health of the men in their lives. <laughs> what are the current gaps in research in women's health and what could we be doing better, given that I already said I think you're doing a darn sight better than men are? Unfortunately, as much as women are vocal about their health conditions, um, conditions that affect men or affect more men than women are typically more highly funded than those that affect women. And in fact, in the United States, the National Institute of Child Health and Development, NICHD, which funds women's gynecologic health and maternal and child health, is one of the smallest in the National Institutes of Health, or the NIH. So we and many others have been lobbying Congress to improve funding for women's health. And there's really a lot more to do here. Considering that one in 10 women suffer from this disease, the amount of funding that goes into it is still quite small. Um, so we've been lobbying and uh, hopefully hope to see some improvements. So switching topics slightly, I, I fly airplanes as an avocation. I've, I've talked to multiple groups at schools and universities to try and encourage more women to pursue aviation either as a career or a hobby with precious little impact. There are amazing female role models uh, in, in aviation, yet only around 3 to 4% of pilots are female. You were the first president of advancing women in science and medicine at the Feinstein Institute. Tell us about the aims of this program and what do you think can be done to get more women into science? Or, you know, like aviation. <laughs> One of my friends who's a darn sight more pragmatic than me said, Jonathan, maybe women just aren't interested. <laughs> <laughs> so you pose a very interesting question. Uh, and unlike aviation, there is no problem getting young girls and women interested in science and doing science. The real problem is keeping women in science and promoting them into leadership positions. So at the high school and early college levels, there are equal numbers of males and females taking science courses and doing research projects. And nowadays in the United States, there are more females graduating from medical school each year and applying to medical school each year than males. 
However, in academic science and research, we lose more women faculty than men faculty each year, particularly during their early career years. So that percentage of men in senior positions remain significantly higher than women. And in part, um, this is due to many fewer female uh, leaders and role models. And Awesome, Advancing Women in Science and Medicine has been really working on this female drop-off in medical research. Our program, Awesome, was developed at the Feinstein Institutes uh, at Northwell by Dr. Betty Diamond, a recent inductee into the National Academy of Sciences. It was founded about 15 years ago on the principle that if women work together and helped one another, which is something we're very good at, we would be more likely to succeed in science and achieve our full potential. And as the first president of Awesome, I focused on developing four pillars to help female faculty succeed in leading research groups. The first pillar focused on career development, the second on mentoring and networking, the third on advocacy and education, and the fourth pillar focused on recognition. And for that fourth pillar, we've spent the last 12 years or so fundraising with an annual fundraising event. And last year, we raised over $750,000 to fund female researchers here, particularly in their early career years, so that they stick with it and don't drop off. Um, and this has been a tremendous boost to their confidence and has really significantly improved their success in obtaining larger federal grants to support their research. And it has really promoted collaboration among all of the researchers here at the Feinstein. So it's been an incredible program of success for the institution as well as all of the male and female colleagues here. That's wonderful. And it should really come as no surprise to anyone listening in who I think will be going, oh, yeah, I get it. So we've got someone who's uh, clinically inquisitive, is doing research, is doing everything she can to encourage others. And you dedicate a lot of your time to mentoring and coaching young scientists. Where does the passion, I mean, I guess this is almost sort of um, a self-reflection because I loved the uh, the interaction with patients. I loved operating, but I adored teaching. I really loved watching someone uh, grow and seeing those aha moments in their eyes and watching their skill set develop and watching their brain go to work. So where do you get your jollies from, from coaching and, and helping people? And where do you see education and, and the role of folks like you going in in the coming years with the growth of things like AI, digital role. Di yeah, I heard the other day one estimate that 44% of jobs, 44% of jobs could be replaced by robots and AI within the next few years. These are very shocking statistics, and I'm not sure AI will ever have the passion and the inquisitive nature and curiosity that humans have for solving problems. 
Um, but I'm sure they will attempt. Um, but I'm not sure we'll ever be able to uh, replace humans uh, doing research because it seems as though we spend a lot of our time troubleshooting. And I'm not sure we would be able to train AI to do all the troubleshooting we do all day. Um, I'm really passionate about teaching and passionate about mentoring and coaching young scientists, regardless of their gender. Uh, I've had dozens of students in my laboratory over the years and more than 50 summer interns over my career. And I wouldn't be where I am today without the support that I received from my mentors. So to me, mentoring and coaching students is the price I pay or the rent I pay for the opportunities that I've had in research, uh, which have been really tremendous and a lot of time exploring and having a really great time succeeding. Um, mentoring is kind of, to me, like the secret sauce that helps promote others to achieve greatness. And to be honest, many of my students have had brilliant ideas that led to successes in my lab. So it's really a win-win situation. Not sure how that ties into AI, but I'm just not sure where that's going to go. Yeah, it's um, challenging times, I guess. But then again, if, if these tools like robotics, certainly in surgery that I've had the privilege to work on, improve outcomes, then maybe humans can evolve to to a place where they're doing more meaningful work and are doing the thinking. But I guess uh, let's put a marker in and, and wait and see. Finally, if you had three wishes to be granted by a magical genie to advance women's healthcare, what would those wishes be? I guess the first one to me is obvious, more funding to support research focused on women's health. Uh, and easier times getting it. We spend an awful lot of our days trying to get funding um, and in areas where there is so little funding, it is very challenging. Um, I think the second wish would be more emphasis on research focused on prevention and early detection and treatment. And with our program here, we are particularly interested in enrolling teens and tweens. So to our knowledge, no one has studied menstrual blood um, in teens or tweens. And I believe that similar differences among those who have endometriosis versus those who do not will appear. And it will be very important for us to tailor our diagnostic for the particular age group. And if we really want to make a difference, we really do want to target people at younger ages. And then I guess the third genie wish um, for the magic genie would be to have more collaborative research between scientists and physicians, which I think we make wonderful teams and can do really great things together with patients uh, and healthy controls. Uh, we really encourage the public to participate in our research, and people could just Google rose and endometriosis, and our study would be the first that pops up. But we'll also provide the links um, that could be used with this podcast. Absolutely. Those, those are great wishes. I'm inclined to mention 
an event that I went to. It was hosted by some good friends at Leeds University, David Jane uh, and his colleagues. And it was, it was an event where he brought together clinicians, basic scientists, material scientists, patients, uh, patient advocates, and just interested members of the public to talk about colorectal health. And there were some absolutely fascinating ideas that came out of it. And my experience of innovation, Christine, has been that when you bring people who see the world through a different optic together, there's no limit to the problems that we can solve. And I'm equally sure there's no limit to the problems that Professor Christine Metz is going to solve. Thank you so much for being on the podcast and for all the brilliant work you're doing. Thank you for hosting me. It was a load of fun. I really enjoyed it. Fantastic. So folks, please subscribe to the EMJ podcast, check out the archives, tell your friends and colleagues, and join us next week for another fantastic episode. Until then, I'm Jonathan Sackier, and please stay safe, stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.